0: My friends, could I ask you to turn to Ephesians chapter 1, Paul's epistle to the Ephesians. Now, if you've got a pew Bible, you'll find that on page number 1795, 1795. I want to read uh, the first 14 verses. So if you find uh, Ephesians chapter 1, let us hear the word of God as is found in Paul's uh, letter to the Ephesians. Verse 1, chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, in him. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. In him you also trusted. After you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. Amen. So read God's word. Put a little marker in your Bibles. We'll uh, be turning to that chapter again uh, later in the service. If you could turn to Isaiah chapter 9, and we'll read for the last time in this little series. Uh, what we'll do is just we'll just read verses 6 and 7, okay? So Isaiah 9, verse 6 and 7, so you should be familiar, obviously, with this reading with uh, Had it uh, during the course of this month. So, verse 6 of Isaiah 9. For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. And the government will be upon his shoulder. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. Upon the throne of David's and over his kingdom to order it. And establish it with judgment and justice. From that time forward even forever. The seal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Amen. When the angel came and visited Mary. And made what was quite a staggering announcement. Concerning the fact that she was going to give birth to a son. That his name would be Jesus, concerning the fact that he would be great, he would be called the Son of the Most High, that he would reign on the throne of his father David over the house of Jacob forever. Mary displays her humility, her honesty, her practical female intuition by answering what, what might have been the obvious question, how can this be? How will this be? How is it possible, Mr. Angel? Well, I think the angel had announced himself as Gabriel. But how how is it possible, Gabriel, that the things that you have said concerning what is conceived in me will be fulfilled in the way that you have just described? In much the same way as we come to the end of this prophetic passage in Isaiah chapter 9 and this final sentence of uh, this passage that we have been studying together the seal of the lord of hosts will perform this or the seal of the lord of hosts will accomplish this we're at the end of one of the most startling and dramatic messianic prophecies that isaiah gives us he has told us that a child is to be born That this child will establish a kingdom that unlike any other kingdom, this one will never ever end. He will be the prince of peace and his peace will prevail. He is to be the king uh, that is the end of all kings. He is king of kings. He is Lord of lords. No one will come after him. He's in no need of any successor. No one is going to come along and say, I think we can improve on what has been done, because no improvement will be necessary. No improvement will be possible. What is being prophesied here by Isaiah is uh, propelling its way through the story of redemptive history till finally we get to the place where Paul Summarizes the expectation and the phraseology. One day, at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of his Father. It is that kind of deep-seated conviction which provides clarity in our proclamation Which gives to us a spirit of boldness. And hopefully uh, that boldness is tempered by humility. So as to be able to speak into our generation. Words that are quite staggering to the ears of men and women. And when we feel enabled by God's grace to do so. uh, To speak to those who are in positions of authority over us. As we uh, write to them and send them emails, and maybe if, you know they come up and uh, speak to us on our doorsteps. You know, I've been in Armagh what 25 years now, and never once has a politician rapped on the door. Um, and just two weeks ago, the uh, prospective Conservative candidate uh, rapped on the door and uh, canvassing for a vote and was able to engage them in conversation about the issues uh, that I would say is important uh, as a a Christian. And we get these opportunities to speak to those who hopefully will be an authority and to confront them. Those who uh, are part of the, uh, the structures of our day, the political structures and the financial structures. In fact, all of the structures as God opens the doors and gives us opportunity. Uh, we're able by his grace to proclaim this news of uh, this amazing Prince of Peace. And then we find that we stand when we do that. Uh, we actually find ourselves standing on the the shoe in the same shoes or standing on the shoulders of those who have gone before us. Uh, we are not the first generation to Uh, attempt to influence and challenge those in positions of power and authority. You know, when John Calvin wrote his Institutes of the Christian Religion back in the 16th century, he wrote to uh, the King of France, uh, Francis I, this is in 1536, and he provided uh, King Francis with a copy of this theological classic That he had written. And he wrote to Francis I as follows. He says your duty most serene prince. Is not to shut your ears or mind. Against a cause involving such mighty interests as these. And then Calvin outlines the mighty interests. How the glory of God is to be maintained on the earth. How the truth of God is to preserve its dignity. How the kingdom of Christ is to continue among us compact and secure. The cause is worthy of your ear, he writes to Francis. Worthy of your investigation, worthy of your throne. The characteristics... Of a true sovereign. Is to announce that in the administration of his kingdom. He is a minister of God. He who does not make his reign subservient. To the divine glory. Acts not the part of a king. But a robber. And so we need to be much in prayer for our present king. Because he is playing the part of a robber. In spite of what he said during the course of his uh, coronation uh, earlier this year, you know, the man and his uh, statements uh, in that COP 28, wasn't it? His opening speech was nothing more than a pantheistic rambling. You know, that, that's his God. You know, this earth is his God. Gaea, Mother Earth we need to be much in prayer for these who rule over us and so calvin writes to you know francis the first and what possible conviction would possess john calvin as a theologian to write to the king of france in such a way except that calvin recognized the truth that is contained in the final sentence of the seventh verse of isaiah chapter 9 the seal of the lord of hosts will perform this because beloved when we stand back from isaiah's portrait and we fuse something of its fastness, if we are honest we find ourselves asking exactly the same question that mary asked of the angel namely how can this be how will this be? And it's as though Isaiah anticipates that question in the mind of his readers, and he answers it before there is further cause for alarm. Isaiah recognizes that these offence that he has described will not transpire in the ordinary course of affairs. For all of this to take place it necessitates, nay, it demands the Lord of hosts. Furiously translated as the Lord Almighty. It will need him, the Lord God of hosts, the Lord God Almighty, and his seat to accomplish all of this. Now, if we might put it in common uh, parlance, it's as though God speaking through his prophet is saying to his people, don't worry, don't fret, I have it all in hand, I will see to it. So, in relationship to the seal of the Lord of hosts, just let's look at it under uh, three headings. First of all, the seal defined, and then secondly, the seal displayed, and then thirdly, the seal discovered. First of all, then, let us try and define our terms. It's important to define things, isn't it? Because without definition, we can pour into words any kind of meaning, meaning that we want at all. So what, then, is the seal? Well, we need to understand that seal and jealousy in God are two sides of the one coin. They're two sides of the one concept. God is both zealous and he is jealous. Indeed, we might say that God is zealous because he is jealous. And the reason he is jealous is because he is a God of love. And both his zeal and his jealousy emerge from a heart that is compassionate, that is loving and devoted. The kind of love is a love that will This kind of love is a love that will brook uh, brook, uh, no no rivals. And it's a love that is provoked by disloyalty. We will immediately go wrong if we start to think of this jealousy in terms of our human pettiness. You know, the kind of envy that resents what another has and you want it just because you don't have it nothing could be further from uh, that form of jealousy which is revealed here. The jealousy of God, the seal of God, is that which displays a desire to protect and to provide for those who are the objects of his love, you and me, if we are his children. If we want to argue, uh, provide an example rather from the lesser to the greater, or try to bring it down to descend to our level, if you like, in order to get a picture of what I'm referencing here. Uh, We might think in terms of the unwillingness of a wife to share her husband's affection uh, with another. It, It couldn't possibly be a mark of fidelity or monogamy, to be prepared to share the affections of your spouse with someone else. You know, any wife or husband worth their salt wants to guard zealously and jealousy the affection of the one who has become the object of their love. And there's no surprise in that, is there? It's a corrupt and unstable mind. It's an immoral posture that deviates from that in any dimension at all. And again, going from the lesser to the greater by way of an example, perhaps we could explain it by the protective love of a father for his daughter who protects with a seal, and a right jealousy, the honor of his daughter in every place and amongst all people. You know, this is my daughter. You don't speak to her like that. This is my daughter. You do not treat her like that. I am absolutely, passionately committed to her, to her protection, to her provision, and to her honor. And so you see, friends, through those examples, how every father worthy of the word father understands that. And so when we go from the lesser up to the greater, and then we we are looking to God, who is the epitome of fatherhood, who is, if you like, the great bridegroom, preparing his people as a bride for himself, then you realize the extent of his seal and his love. And he is zealous for his own honor and for his own glory. And that's because he is God. The reason that so many have trouble with the idea that God protects his own honor and glory and provides for it is because man wants to be God. Man wants to take the place of God. But there is only one God. And that is why we say, you know, the catechism, the chief end of man uh, is to glorify God. And to enjoy him forever. Now it is in this realm. That seal is a component of true love. And certainly a component of God's covenant love. Because God loves unreservedly. God loves those who are the objects of his affection. And he is zealous in his provision And protection of those who are his children. He is jealous in the way in which he guards them. Because ultimately through them. He gets glory to his name. And he is concerned ultimately about his own glory. And so having attempted to define the terms. Let's go on and see how this is displayed. How should we view this being displayed? Well, let me suggest to you in two simple ways. First of all, that we see the seal of God of hosts displayed in God's plan or in God's purpose or in God's will. We can use those words interchangeably. The seal of the Lord of hosts displayed in his plan or in his will and so hopefully you still have your markers in Ephesians chapter 1 and if you flick over to Ephesians chapter 1 we will employ the principle that we have employed a number of times in our course of this studies, pulling in other uh, verses just to uh, throw light on what we are talking about uh, again it's employing the principle of reading our Bibles backwards Paul reaches back in this opening chapter before the world when he thinks in terms of God's will or God's purpose or plan. And he speaks about the eternal counsels of God's will. You actually see that in verse 4 of chapter 1. For he choose us in him before the creation of the world. Now, the reason this is important, beloved, is because it makes it very clear to us that the plan of God in redemption is not, get this, it is not something that he executed in time in order to create a defective system. It is worked out in time. It's not executed in time. No, it was executed in eternity. Uh, We're told that, you know, there is a a plan that God established. Executed in eternity to achieve a purpose which cannot be contravened. So it's not executed in time to fix a defect. Oh no, Adam fell, what am I going to do? But in eternity... To achieve a purpose. I'll not. Um, weary you by. You know. Um, laboring the point. But just let us consider this. In verse 5. First of all you will notice. That he says. That God is doing this in accordance. With his pleasure. And will. God's pleasure and his will. Are interwoven. And the purpose. Well, you see it there in verse 6. The purpose is to the praise of his glorious grace. And in verse 9, And he made known to us the mystery of his will. And notice again, according to his good pleasure. And again, notice which he purposed in Christ. And he was going to put that into effect. He says in verse 10, when the times have reached their fulfillment. And in verse 11, in him we were also chosen, having been predestined according, notice again, to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. In other words, beloved, God's covenant love is at the epicenter of God's plan for the world. That's why so many of us love John 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him will never perish, but have everlasting life. That is the very heart, the very center of the plan and purpose of God and God's design and his zealous commitment, his passionate commitment, if you like. His seal is passion. His passionate commitment to his people is such that even in the things that seem most wrong, he remains absolutely, inevitably, unquestionably, Unwaveringly committed to fulfill what he has purposed the seal of the lord of hosts defined in terms of his covenant love is displayed in his unfolding plan and secondly the seal of the lord of hosts is displayed in the company of god's people The purpose of God from all eternity is to put together a people that are his very own. And again, if we don't understand that, we will never understand the Bible. We'll never understand what God is doing with Abraham, calling him out of Ur of the Chaldees. We will not understand what it is that he's doing in protecting his people by the provision of the laws that he gives to Moses on Mount Sinai, so that their very commitment and obedience to what God says may not, uh, they may not become like the surrounding nations. You know, when they obey God, when they obey his laws, uh, they won't be absor- absorbed into the uh, pagan Canaanite culture. They, they would be preserved. And so finally, in the last day, uh, there will be a company of people from every, you know, tribe and language and nation uh, that are, that are represented by God's zealous commitment towards them. That's why he says to Moses, you know, I want you to go to Pharaoh and I want you to say to him, let my people go. And you see, God's seal is revealed in bringing them out of Egypt into the land of promise. His seal is revealed in the miracles that he performs so that they might go by protection, you know, of a cloud by day and a fairy cloud pillar by night so that they might eat according to God's provision in all those 40 years in the wilderness so that they might drink as a result of all that he has given to them. God provides for his people. zealously protecting them. And then when you fast forward through all of that. And you come to the New Testament. You find that the picture of liberation from that bondage of Egypt. You, see, you find that it becomes a very picture that has actually happened to us. You know, we were in bondage. And bondage to the world, and we were we were set free. And when we realize how you know tied up we were within ourselves, within the world system, and how self centered we were and how indifferent and rebellious we were towards God. When we realized by God's grace that we needed someone to redeem us from that enslavement uh, that the Bible calls sin. You know, how was that to be accomplished? By the seal of the Lord of hosts. The Lord has set his love upon us and pursued us, wooed us, and drew us. You know, for you know, dead people can't make themselves alive. It was God made us alive. Why is it that someone who like the Apostle Paul who denied every you know tenant of Christ's you know, credibility. Why is it that he became a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and a fierce proclaimer of the truth? Because God set him free. God took the, uh, the scales of his eyes. The, Lord, the seal of the Lord of hosts performed this. And God's commitment to his people is such that he makes their cause his own. That's why he provides for them. That's why he protects them. Someone may say, well, he doesn't seem to have rescued us from all our foes. You know, some people get a diagnosis that they didn't expect or the diagnosis that they didn't want. Some of us do have ongoing battles that apparently you know, don't seem to have any end well, again, you just have to remember what we said this morning. You know, the distinction between the already and the not yet. And the last enemy, as we said this morning, is death hasn't been destroyed yet. We had in expectation of the fulfillment of that. You see, the eschatological part is not yet. And that's... Uh, significant for us to bear in mind and so far as that enables us to make sense of the stumblings and the bumblings and the disappointments and the heartaches and the sicknesses and the illnesses that remain unresolved for us. But, but none of it takes God by surprise. God says, I love you on the basis of my covenant love. I am protecting you and I have provided for you and will continue to perfect, protect and will continue to provide for you. And Paul picks that up in Romans chapter 8, doesn't he? And Paul says, if God's for us, who can be against us. And the answer is nobody can be against us. You know, All kinds of people can be against us. All kinds of things can be against us. All kinds of things can come at us like an onslaught, like a tidal wave. So Paul takes them and he says, just let me think about that. You know, so tribulation, trials, persecution, poverty, nakedness, peril, sword, death. It's like Paul is saying, you know, come on, throw it all at us. Throw everything that you can think about at us. Can any of these things separate us from the love of Christ? Can any of these things defeat us? And he says no. Because we are more than conquerors. Through him who loved us. Who is this Christ? He is the wonderful counselor. He is the mighty God. He is the everlasting father. He is the prince of peace. You see there really is no peace. Outside of that which is accomplished by the seal. Of the Lord of hosts. To quote Calvin again, Calvin said, Christ is called the Prince of Peace and our peace because he claims he calms all the agitations of conscience. Do you have an agitated conscience? How do you ease that agitated conscience? With pills? With yoga sessions? says Calvin, in short, peace must be sought nowhere but in the agonies of Christ the Redeemer. Did you get that? Peace must be sought nowhere but in the agonies of Christ the Redeemer. Why? Because in his agonies he has borne our sin and carried our sorrows. Isn't that the story? And finally, finally, What about its discovery? Well, if it's defined in terms of God's covenant love, if it's displayed in his plan and in his people, how is it personally to be discovered? Well, Again, back to Ephesians chapter 1, and we'll finish here. Ephesians 1, verse 13, he's writing to these folks in Ephesus, and he says to them, you were included in Christ. Well, when did that happen? Well, he tells us it happened when you heard. You see it there in verse thirteen. When you heard the word of truth, just let's pause there for a second. He says, "You have heard this word of truth." Say, "What is it?" Well, he tells us there after the comma, doesn't he? It's the the gospel of your salvation. It's the good news of salvation, and what is the good news? It is that despite the fact that we are sinners, despite the fact that we are rebels, Christ died for us when we were yet sinners. That God is an initiative-taking God. God has sent his Son into the world to die on the cross, bearing the punishment of our sin so that we would be forgiven. And all who trust in that sacrifice that Christ made, You and himself burst all our sins. Find themselves the beneficiaries of all of the righteousness of Jesus. You, he says, you were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. And what did you do with it? He said you believed. So you hear this word. You can identify it because it's good news. It's not bad news. Obviously, there's bad news attached to it, as we have seen. You know, last Sunday morning, you know, we know there's bad news attached to it. But, um, you know, it's, uh, it's the good news of salvation, isn't it? You know, Christ came and died for us. We believed. And when we were believed, we were marked in him with a seal. It's a picture of a signet ring, our family crest. And God takes the family crest, he takes, if you like, uh, your name, and he takes a sheet of paper, and your name's on it at the top, and he stamps it with the seal, with the, with the signet ring, and he says, she's mine, he's mine. You know, personalize that. You know, God says, Chris is mine, Rosie is mine. And he says, I will never let you go. You were dead. You were lost in trespasses and sins. You had no hope whatsoever. But you came to Christ. And it's in Christ you have the hope. You heard it. You believed it. He says, rest your life, your destiny, in the strength of it. That's what it means to be a believer, isn't it? You trust in, you trust in Christ. You know, beloved, when you are in Christ, you are ontologically related to everybody else who is in Christ. You can't be out of Christ. You're in Him. Therefore, like it or lump it, you are stuck with all these people who are also in Christ. You know, you can't choose your, your family members, isn't that right? Well, you can't choose your spiritual family members either. And uh, if God has brought you uh, into this wonderful household of faith, he says you live together in peace and harmony with one another and bear my light before you. You know, if I were uh, to bring yourselves up there, you you, who are Christians, and give you uh, two minutes to explain what, what it was that uh, brought you to Christ. And you just had to sum it all up. I'm sure you would sum it up no better than saying, well, it was the seal of the Lord of hosts accomplished this. You know, God pursued me. God brought me into his family. God did it. It's all all the glory to him. Well... That brings us to the end of this little series.